I read a little article uh, some months ago, uh, someone in Minneapolis. Uh, was talking, complaining really, saying about how most of the people in Minneapolis give the cold a hard time. They're just so down on cold weather. And it was sort of a manifesto to try to liberate the cold from its bad reputation. And just saying, it's just cold. It sounded like it was, he, he must have done a three-month retreat here or something. You know, to open to the cold, to not uh, be so preoccupied with it, see it as a natural condition, see the positive side of it. We're much more alert when it's cold, at least to a point. <laughs> to not see it as World War Three. you know, some of the weather forecasts sound like what they're talking about is World War Three, where all it is is going to be a snowfall or something. Dogen Zenji, a very great Japanese Zen master, talked, gave a commentary on uh, a very ancient koan, which often helps me get through the summer. I've never really reflected on it for the winter. It's never been a problem that way. But there's a famous uh, Chinese koan where a a student asks a teacher, uh, how do you meditate when it's hot and when it's cold? Because uh, in Asia, certainly years ago, uh, there was no central heating or air conditioning. And so a lot of the times you were trying to do this delicate work and it was either too hot or too cold. So the answer was kill hot, kill cold. One answer. Years later, it was confusion. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't sound very Buddhist to me. <laughs> And an explanation or a very brief commentary on it was hot Buddha, cold Buddha. What it means to kill hot or kill cold is not literally to kill it. But after all, what are you going to do? So let's say even the Buddha, if it's hot, the Buddha sits there and sweats. If it's cold, he sits there and shivers. That's it. But it's not more than that. Because we don't add add on top of that all the many uh, fabrications that the mind is capable about it, the struggle with it. I, and then, of course, when we, when we make it into me and mine, I'm cold, I'm hot. And so, it's just cold. Whereas with awareness, little by little, we can disentangle the fact that it's just cold or it's just hot from all that the mind is capable of concocting about it, sometimes not even realizing it regretting it, being annoyed. You tell me, what have you gone through? Hating it, looking for solutions all over the place. That makes it worse. That's what the man in Minneapolis was saying. Okay, um, does that help or what? (laughs) It's just another application. Yes? There's always a wise guy in every group. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Um, It always includes reason. That is, if if you just get over pneumonia, then that's real for you. Then 
that has to be, of course, taken care of. You know, it's not, uh, this is not brazen. It's not saying to flaunt anything. It's the point is, when you do everything you can do, and then finally you've done that, what else can you do? So you've done what you can do. You're sitting in a cold monastery. Uh, you can rest with that since you've done what you can do. It's the same with anything else, with an illness or any social situation. When you've done what you can do, uh, you can then relax into that because that's it. Or the mind can keep going over it, just plowing it over, over and over and making up all kinds of things. So, I don't know, should you be in this hall? Seriously, I'm not, you know, is it, is it not healthy for you to be here? If it isn't, then shouldn't, don't, you know. I, the kitchen is warm or some room is warmer than here. It's not worth it. I don't have anything to say tonight, I'll tell you that. I already know. <laughs> We've been talking for nine straight days, you know. <laughs> And even a talker like me has limits, which I've reached. So I'll make you talk. Do you have any questions? I thought it would be uh, an opportunity to tie up any loose ends, and not only about what we've been doing, but perhaps uh, moving in the direction of where we're going, uh, bringing the practice to wherever you're going. Uh, my answers are going to be the same answers as if you were here, because there's Daily life is wherever you go. But if there's anything unresolved or confusing, This part about cold and hot, don't make cold, don't make hot, or kill cold, hot Buddha, cold Buddha, uh, is an extremely important part of our practice. And it's the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Um, and if we can get even a little closer to understanding it, before we leave here, it would be helpful because its applications are endless. And I think we've gone through some of them. Um, one teacher that I had, uh, one point, uh, I worked with him for five years. And when I left, he gave me a present of a calligraphy which simply said, don't make anything, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. He said, that's the essence of the Buddhist teaching. It's all in that. It's like a Western Union telegram. Don't make anything. Now, what in the world? And I've been working with that one for about 15 years at least. Don't make anything. We've been saying that in different ways. If you make hot, you have hot. You have a problem. What it is, is adding on to what's already happening. You already have one hat on or one head, you put another head on top of that. Something is happening to the body. The body is in pain. That's what's happening. But now if the mind catches hold of it and without any reflection, without any discernment, then it can actually create torment out of pain. Uh, most of you probably have read 
about dukkha, because that's used so much in Buddhism, right? Is there anyone who has not heard of the fact that Buddhists are interested in suffering and the end of suffering? Um, but I mentioned it the other evening, and I, I really want to make sure we uh, leave, at least beginning to understand it. Um, because there's a, a profound aspect to it which we can miss easily. For example, it's often quoted uh, to back up that the, what the Buddha is saying, is saying that birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, dying is suffering. And that sounds obvious. And we're saying everything is suffering. But that, that's not... Uh, if we think that by that it means, let's say, um, when you get... Everyone gets sick... Everyone gets old, everyone dies, everyone was born, of course, in order for all the other things to happen. Uh, We already know that. So what is the Buddha adding to that? That's distinctive. Pain is not exactly the same thing as torment. Now, don't make anything. What does that mean? If the body ages, as it must... And what comes along with that are, let's say, physical pain, uh, change in our physical appearance, a, a limited capacity. We can't hear as well, see as well, and so forth. That's a fact. No one's denying that. But that happens to everyone. Now, in Buddhism, it's talked about suffering and the end of suffering. And so some people think this is outrageous because how could there be an end to suffering? What the Buddha is talking about he himself experienced pain, had what might have been food poisoning towards the end. And of course, like anyone who has a body, must experience these things. So he's talking about something that's a little bit different. I mean, what's distinctive about it is when we take what has happened to us, let's say aging, and then we make me and mine out of it, or as my body is getting old, we create a self out of it then it's no longer just the literal pain of the body aging, which is a natural condition. But now we've taken that natural condition and to it we've imposed, superimposed, a whole world of anxieties, apprehensions, expectations, and we've made, real, we've made dukkha, torment, real suffering. So that he's not, uh, he's not talking about a Hollywood ending, you know, where... If you're a Buddha, you know, you just don't feel any pain at all, no matter what happens. What he's talking about is what we do with what happens to us. And that's the, the crucial, that's where wisdom comes in. We're all cold. Each one, probably, most of us are cold in this room. And then the question is, what do we do with that? Can we just be cold or will we make cold into something, we make it into something? And so this, the statement, don't make anything, it has a, an extension to it. If you don't make anything, you can have everything and do everything. It's not about retreating from the world or becoming a hermit, necessarily, unless that's what, what's right for you. It has to do with an inner state. Don't make anything means don't make self out of anything. Don't get attached to things. Be in the world. Do what you must do. Be what you must be. So this comes up time and time again. Did any of you see that in noticing attachment when it came up? If you recall, you were encouraged to, if you found anything off during the day, 
even just small annoyance to investigate, to see if there was some pushing away, some holding on. Now, if there was, if you found that, did anyone find that? Or am I the only one walking around here? You found it, good. I don't mean good, but I mean glad you looked, because it's there. Did you see, or if you didn't, you know, include it in your investigations, either here or when you get home? Invariably, you'll see it's another way of saying that in that moment there was me and mine. You know, you have your walking track and you're using it for the first seven days. And it's really nice. You like the bowl. I used to like the bowling alley. It's very nice. And so you, you go down there and you've got your place. It's cozy. The eighth day you come down there, there's someone else walking on your track. And it can be minor, but it's a feeling of there's some discomfort. There's even suffering sometimes. And if you look at it, it's, that's my walking path. Now, if there's some pain, what got hurt was the my. Otherwise, all that's happened is you don't have that walking path. Or even the annoyance. See, it keeps going like that. So we can't stop what's going to happen. The mind keeps secreting these moods and states, just like digestive juices. It's out of control. You know, it just does what it wants to do. So let's say there's annoyance, if that comes up. Someone's in, in your walking path, and suddenly the mind secretes annoyance. Okay, we can't control that. That's the whole point of not-self. It means that there isn't any core, any autonomous entity, some centralized power that can control everything. It just isn't, if you look closely. So the, let's say annoyance comes up. Then it can be just annoyance. But if you claim it, it's my annoyance. I feel awful about this. Then you have, then you have something else. Depending on the degree of identification and attachment, you can have just a little bit more irritability or you can have torment. Now, this tendency to make me and mine out of things, it seems as if uh, some people are born with less of a tendency to do that, an inclination to do that. And some are born with an enormous need to do it. In our practice here, if there were moments when you got very calm and concentrated, at least in some of them, probably there was no me in mind. You had a break. You know, you had a vacation from it. In that moment, you were just being with the breathing. There was calm, some peace. Now, later on, a moment later, something in us might have claimed it. There was my sitting is a very good sitting now. At that moment, you're setting up the foundation for suffering. You're laying the, you know, you're laying it out, setting it up, setting yourself up, really. Because now you have made good sitting. You've made yogi, whatever, good yogi, whatever. And if you make something, then you have a problem. Because it looks as if anything we make eventually breaks. Nothing lasts. Quite naturally, during the day, any day, there are periods of time when we're not making, not manufacturing me and mine. And often they're some of our happiest times. It could be because the atmosphere is very relaxed and calm and we just stop working so hard to be this, that, and the other. 
or to get somewhere. And we just, we just are. We're just doing what we're doing. And it's very nice. So all of us, even if we never heard of meditation, it's not like we're doing this all day long. There are gaps or it would have been worse than it is. I don't know if we would have made it if we were just the moment we woke up, just constantly being egocentric about everything that was happening to us. So there are gaps, there are breaks. Now, a concentration practice is another way in which we have a break, some peace from it. Anytime you're really mindful, in a way you're inoculated, you're protected. Because even the thought, this is my walking path, what are you doing there? If that comes up and it's accompanied by mindfulness, then it's, you don't get bitten by it. Your mind doesn't bite you. After all, you're the one who's biting yourself. When we do that, we bite ourselves. It's not the person doing the walking. They're just walking. It's not the bowling alley. And so if there's mindfulness, uh, what happens is it's like the venom is taken out of the snake. You know, it goes through all the sounds, but it could even bite you, but it's, it's all right, it's no problem. If there's no mindfulness, then what tends to happen is we fall into me and mine. My walking path, I, you know, I'm picking something perhaps trivial. Although one time, for me, it wasn't. That's why I'm using it as an example. I really did like that bowling alley. <laughs> and so, we actually, the lights are on, but there's nobody home. That's one way of saying it. It's for the, the mind-body to, to live without having to make everything that it does into something. I don't know, perhaps this is confusing to if you're new to this. It's actually, uh, in a certain sense, not unique to Buddhism. It seems all the spiritual paths are talking about it. Uh, to come to God, I mean, when the mystics talk about that, um, you have to travel very light. And part of, the, part of the reason that we have problems is that the ego wants to travel along with it. It wants to be there at the time to see enlightenment so that it can take some credit for it. <laughs> and the problem is that the only way you can get there is by leaving this behind. But that which wants to come with you won't stay behind because it doesn't know that there's any other way to be. I mean, that if it isn't there, then it isn't a real event. If there isn't thinking about it, it's not real. I mean, the actual experience of enlightenment is nothing compared to just thinking about it, which is much more wonderful. Jesus said, um, as I understand it, uh, there was a very wealthy uh, young man who was possibly wanted to follow Jesus. It was something to the effect, some of you can correct me, if I don't have the details right. Uh, it's easier for... Oh, Jesus told this person, he was very wealthy, he said, you're going to have to, if you leave all, leave all this behind and follow me. But he couldn't do it. And Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle 
and for a rich man to go to heaven. Now, in one sense, that was talking about an outer condition, but the inner meaning is just what we're talking about. Rich here doesn't mean money, because if a person has a lot of money, but is empty, has let go of this, is not making things, not making I and mine out of everything, then of course, the problem isn't money, money is just money. So if you're traveling, if your mind is very rich, it's filled up with things, then it can't get to heaven. Now in Buddhism, we talk about it from moment to moment, but it's really, they're all pointing to the same thing. Uh, The problem is us. We are our own worst problem. Any questions? Yeah. You're going to see if we give different answers? (laughs) (laughs) Pitting us against each other, dissension. That's wrong speech. The Buddha was very, very firm about that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, Ajahn Sawada will be here in May. You can ask him. But, you know, but I can do... Uh, people don't know what you're referring to, so let me... Uh, I'll have to go, okay. you know. And I'll just... I'll leave it for you to decide because they both seem like valid decisions and I'll just give you a sense of what was the point was. Um, Ajahn Sawada is a Thai forest teacher. And uh, I told him about... Uh, watching uh, the death, uh, the cremation of a, a nun at a Korean monastery. I told you about this, that uh, one, a Zen master there was crying and I was surprised. I talked to him. I mean, I felt foolish that I was surprised. But, uh, and what he said was um, he had known her for many years and she was a good friend and of course he would miss her. And He grieved fully and then it was over, which sounded like a very good answer to me. It sounded like what human beings do. So I asked Ajahn Sawat this and I said, what do you think of this? I wasn't just being mischievous. I like to, you know, because there were all kinds of subtle points. And he heard it and then he had some hesitation because he didn't want to say anything negative. But he said, well, it sounded like that monk, that was fine. Uh, But it sounds like uh, he didn't have complete wisdom. Now, you know, we're just playing because it's one person talking about another person's experience and what can you do with that? 
he wasn't being arrogant at all. And he no, said, right. yeah, yeah. But l- l- I'll finish the point so then we know what we're talking about a little because other people here may not know what you mean. So then he said, um, that monk still had some something. Uh, it was like that was his nun. My nun died. See, in other words, there was still some possessiveness and it, what he was suggesting. So then I asked him about his own teacher. He was very close to a, uh, another a wonderful teacher who died a few years ago. And I said, how was that for you? Because you were very close to me. He said, well, many times when I was a younger monk, I would get sad and depressed and, and be worried. What will happen when Ajahn um, Fun dies? Because he was so important to him. And he said, but I kept practicing, you know, and years went by. And he said, as a matter of fact, when Ajahn Fun died, uh, there was just deep, deep love for him. And I didn't, it wasn't an enormous amount of suffering and I drew him out on that. What he was trying to say is that when the wisdom gets really deep, to me this is plausible. This doesn't mean it's coldness at all. When you really and deeply understand that we all must die, not talking yourself into it, but through deep meditation and understanding, understand that it's just the way things are. It's not necessarily cold, although from our point of view it may seem that way. And so I asked him a few, in a few different ways. Uh, things like, well, was that cold? Do you think you repressed it? And he said, no, there was just tremendous love for Ajahn Fun. You know, it couldn't have been more if it was my father. But it was total, uh, but wisdom had developed a little bit more over the years. And I was totally comfortable. I knew it was time for him to die, that's all. Now, I'm not saying that's superior to the first monk. How could we? Who, who knows? Now, the practice is really not trying to give you some kind of ideal that you're supposed to run after. Because if what turns up is that you start to cry, because, let's say, the nun died, it's not saying that's bad. It's saying to enter into that with awareness, fully, because that's what's happening. Now, if you do that, then you're not making me and mine out of it. You're just simply allowing a natural condition to happen. If you have very little awareness or not so much, the crying inadvertent it has to have mixed in with it a lot of that's my nun, I'll miss her, it's a loss to me, it's all I and me and mine, a lot of that in there. But it's not saying there's only one way to grieve or to mourn or to relate to a dead person, but it's pointing us in a direction uh, that probably we all need to, to understand a bit better. Does that make any sense? Yeah. When he comes here, ask him. I'm comfortable with both of them, actually, both responses. I, I know. I'm, I, I guess I'm driving at um, the problem, equanimity turning into indifference, because I mm-hmm. saw the uh, John Swatch's point of view coming from a very equanimous sort of place. So uh, I, I think that uh, I'm seeing possible problems in my practice with remaining uh, equanimous. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, maybe um, having a problem remaining equanimous, but yet in touch with, intimately in touch with things. You know, and sort of being the looking glass, but but not not being involved quite as much as when I'm sitting. The separation that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So how how to bring warmth into it? How to do both at the same time? Uh. It's hard for me to know exactly what you mean. Uh, but, um, equanimity, by definition, for equanimity is very is not indifference. In other words, indifference 
is sometimes it looks like equanimity. The two can look very much like, but they couldn't be more different. Uh, Ajahn Swat was certainly not talking about being indif- indifferent. So uh, equanimity can have warmth in it. It has to. The, the key thing is the attachment. Now, indifference uh, it can be the one pole of the same problem. One extreme, you could be holding on. The other is that you're pulling away. Whereas indifference can be a protection against something. Being callous is often people develop a callous uh, stance towards things to defend against their emotions. But that's the other side of getting lost in emotions. They're the same thing. Now, that's equanimity is neither of those. It's e- even uh, even distance from what's happening. But the distance, again, is not that you're pulling away from it. It's that uh, there's an experience of it, a full and even experience of what's happening. And you're not uh, knocked off course. You're not identified with what's happening. I don't, see the, why you try, I don't think it's wise to try to program warmth into it, but rather to uh, examine the way it is for you and let the warmth come naturally. But it's a little too abstract for me right now. Yeah. Is it a particular situation? Uh, I'll try and explain it. Um, I have uh, a lot of things come up, uh, like feelings, for instance, mm-hmm. and uh, usually they're very troubling. And when I, I uh, am usually sitting, I can watch them come up fairly easily, um, see them, and, and they, they go away. And uh, I'm. I'm just concerned that the possibility might be there of um, becoming detached in a very sterile way. Mm-hmm. Well, are you doing that? I'm not sure. It's, I'm sort of trying to ask what are the signs to know when you've uh, turned things sterile, when you've anesthetized, rather than actually... Oh, the feeling is totally different. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that is, if you're asking the question, then you feel there's something off, right? I do. Yeah, then then look at it carefully, investigate it and see it. Find out what's off. That means it takes very delicate work. It means you have to look at how you're, how you're relating to what you're being mindful of. That perhaps the mindfulness has got other things in it. It's not just being mindful. Equanimity is... Um, One way that can help us uh, so we don't polarize it, it's very important to develop along with compassion. Maybe you've heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people who are, let's say, who work with people who are troubled, let's say if you're a therapist or a social worker, whatever you're doing. Uh, and of course, it's, uh, compassion is necessary to really do what those, that kind of work. I mean, it's done without compassion, but I, I think we all understand that uh, that work uh, ideally has some compassion in it. The equanimity factor comes in. Uh, let's say now many people who are doing this kind of work are burnt out. It's uh, something you hear a lot of. People who are working with very troubled people, physically and emotionally troubled people, get burnt out a lot. And some of them, who, people who are getting burnt out, are very kind, feeling, compassionate people. Now, the Buddhist suggestion, or one suggestion, I don't want to harden it into some kind of ideology, um, what you could suggest, and I'm speaking now in general, but maybe it has to do with what you're undergoing or not, 
would be, compassion would be, for example, doing what you can do for somebody. And sometimes you reach a point where you realize that's all you can do. You know, you've done everything you can do, whatever that is, economic, love, food, care, warmth, etc. And you realize that's all you can do, that the person has their own karma and their own destiny that has to be lived out and there's nothing else that you can do. The equanimity comes in in that you rest peacefully in understanding that you've done what you can do and now this other person uh, is an heir to their own karma. They, they, they've inherited it. There's nothing that anyone can do. I heard uh, Kalu Rinpoche give advice to parents once. Parents were just really concerned. They were asking him all these questions, sort of taking the blame for anything that went wrong with their children. Of course, also taking the credit that when anything went right with their children. But in this particular point, it was mainly what was going wrong. And Kalu Rinpoche saw how incredibly involved they were with everything that went wrong with their children's lives. And he said, you know, when a child comes into the world, um, they already come in with a lot of their their own karma. (coughs) Part of that is, of course, having you as the parents. Now, you know... (laughs) I didn't really mean it that way, but okay. (laughs) I was just being descriptive. Um, and you know what you can do is give the child of course you know warmth and good food and a good place to live and help the child find out what to do and you know obvious things but an enormous amount of what's going to happen to the child has nothing to do with you that child has to live out their karma you know everything that happens to the child is not your fault your responsibility you don't own the child the child has sort of come through you you're a vehicle for it. And so, for goodness sakes, relax a little bit. You know, that kind of have equanimity. You do what you can do. Parents do what they can do. But they, they then get involved in all kinds of areas where they have no control, and they worry. Well, you know, we all know what happens. So the equanimity brings a kind of sane note into it. The truth is, if there isn't equanimity, often the compassion gets overdone or comes out in kind of stilted ways, and it sours even the good part of it because of this, the clinging and the holding on. And it isn't genuinely respectful, let's say, of children. But they have to make their own mistakes. They have to grow up. Every one of us has done that, and no one's going to be exempt from it. So it's getting comfortable with that. Uh, it has nothing to do with... You could be a warm and loving parent and understand the limits of parenting. You can be a warm and loving therapist and understand you've done all you can for your patient. And rest comfortably in that and there can be love in it but you don't do things that make no sense simply because you understand that that you've reached your limit that's equanimity you're you're comfortable you're balanced with what's happening yeah you had to grieve about yes I see Um, even in the thick of it, I felt like 
really crying and I could just see that it, it was nothing there and the, um, because it, there was acceptance of it which didn't perpetuate it so I wasn't sort of the mind was buying into some extent but I wasn't adding to it so there were these moments of clarity in there when it wasn't a problem even while it was going on it wasn't a problem mm-hmm. um, I think that was because I was accept- to the level I was able to be on I was accepting it fully mm-hmm. so it wasn't adding to it but, so I, I think I understand what it the two aspects there because there was the, the grief you know like the crying mm-hmm. which was intense and then there was the other thing with being perfectly alright as well you know, there was no problem there and I also for myself I find it helpful to, to see this from the point of view of remembering that grief is actually part of the dose of mind part of the mind of hatred although it's not what people normally think of so mind with grief is actually mind with hate strictly speaking and so we tend to have a wrong view because I think we sort of glamorise the grief and although it is alright to feel grief because we've got the karma for it we don't have to feel that it's something we ought to feel you know, we've got to feel when we're more, inv- more evolved or when we're freer from our own hatred so I think if we understand that grief is actually part of hatred even though it's alright for us to feel it it comes we don't have to feed it and it doesn't mean that when it's not there it's going to be callousness because in the moments when this grief was alright it really was alright <laughs> the whole the situation that the grief was about was perfectly alright really I could sort of see that at the same time momentarily and then the mind dived into the intensity of, the, of its own yes. life okay, that's a bit what I was trying to say uh, grief can just be a natural condition. Someone you love dies and there's grief. When it then becomes part of, of me and mine, you make something. You make something. Then what's happening is something else. You know, there's some kind of claiming of what's going on and the, the torment is happening to the me that was just created. And so you've added something onto a natural condition. And if you see that, even if it does momentarily do that, Mm-hmm. If you accept that in the moment it does it, mm-hmm. even in that moment it doesn't last. And then it's, it's almost like seeing schizophrenic. It can be momentary, the mind can be quite alright about the whole thing. And then it might die even again. And you sort of know there's a apparent problem, there's no problem really. And it's not it's not callousness mm-hmm. or hardness. Everyone clear? Yes. Um, I, I have a question that I, I think I spoke with you about in the week, um, which for me keeps coming and going. And actually, I learned a lot through the sitting with this question. Um, and, and again, it's interesting that I, I both are like to speak to it, and I feel like I also, well, it's like every time I feel like I find the answer to it, and get attached to the answer, then it's in the question comes back again. Or is it? Um, although I felt like I found a sense of it this morning. But the question has to do with um, more. I, 
guess the question of in light of non-attachment um, and the, the, the kind of having a, a perspective on everything that, that you're not attached to and you let things come and let things go, that lots of times during the process to retreat, it would lead to a sense of despair and um, what is, is there any value in anything? Yes, we can easily tilt into an imbalance on this. For example, take the notion of impermanence. Uh, what tends to get overemphasized. Impermanence is just impermanence. <coughs> everything changes. Everything that arises passes away. It's an observable fact. We all know that. And what we emphasize, of course, because we're all so far away from it, is that um, we're not attuned to this fact and we live as if it's not true. And as a result, we suffer unnecessarily a great deal. So it starts to sound like, well, impermanence, that's bad. Because, oh, what it really means is uh, everything's falling apart. And so we ought to not hold on to anything, which is true. But the flip side of that, and here's where we get to the subtle part of non-attachment, which is it's very easy to misunderstand it. It's difficult to live it. Um, the other side of that is, for example, if you more and more can to some degree see that everything that arises passes away, it's not just a negative thing because while something is there, it makes it all the more poignant. Whether it's a friend, child, a meal, a sunset, whatever it is. So, non-attachment, I think what is confused, this is my own view and opinion, what gets confused is that so much of the teaching that we've received has come from monks. And there is one path, that's the monk's path. Uh, In that path, the objects which cause a lot of suffering, in a sense, the approach to help us get to... uh, do something about that is to avoid those objects which cause the problem or even don't touch them at all. No money, no sex, one meal a day, no no belongings, just some some clothes, etc. So, because uh, the objects really in of themselves are not a problem. That is, money is just money, sex is just sex, food is just food, clothing is just clothing. If you just look at it with a clear mind, that's all it is. Okay, but the, but it has a health. The, the monk's path, monks and nuns' path, is very realistic. I mean, it's having a healthy respect that they say, "Look, look around you. How many people? It's true. All it is is green stuff and just the natural process of, let's say, making love. But look, most people are destroyed by it. They either have too much of it or not enough. They're either overeating or undereating or have too much sex or not enough sex or." starving or just drowning in money or just have so many belongings they don't know what to do with it or don't have anything have to live out in the street and so that what they're saying is it's a kind of a healthy fear healthy you know it's sort of like wow okay you know those energies are really powerful sexual energy food energy just take those two we'll throw in money because I who has really learned how to how to work with those in a very balanced way so one approach is you just minimize contact with those objects because they're so dangerous and they have, they've demonstrated they are. Most of us don't know what to do with it. And so a whole path evolves to stay away from that and to 
use the energy that you can have by having a simplified life. In other words, if you can do that, if you're cut out for it. And that can be a very powerful and wonderful path. Okay. Now, it turns out, here we are lay people. We're in the world. We handle money. We make love. We eat. We have homes and clothes and all the rest of it. We have to be careful that we don't kind of have this mixture of sort of we're, we're neither monks and nuns nor lay people. You know, we don't quite know what we are. You know, it's kind of off, and, off again, on again, willy or whatever that phrase was. Um, so that, you know, sometimes we have that standard, either, either consciously or without our knowing it, coloring what we do and not letting us really touch things in the world, thinking they're dirty or they're bad. And then, then we go crazy and we get all involved with things. And, but the, 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 the way of living of non-attachment is something like this. It's, it, has, it doesn't mean you have to renounce things. What you have to renounce is the, the way you relate to the things. One of my first teachers was a, a yogi from India who was a very um, wealthy banker in India. And, you know, as best as I could understand and others who, who studied with him, he was really free of all that and he used his money very skillfully. He himself, you know, he dressed well. He had certainly what he needed and he was just very free of money and used money all the time, helping people, directing funds in certain ways, using the banking system. Money itself is not a problem. If you can be free of it, um, it's, a, it's an energy. It's powerful. It's very good. And it's the same with everything else. So we have a different path, it seems to me. And sometimes you, a lot of people who are in the spiritual path are ambivalent. They're not quite, haven't fully decided, taken the monks and nuns path, which has certain dignity, nobility. It's a very beautiful path. But you've got to really do it. You can't sort of kind of do it. Because if you do, it's a mess. And there ha- that has happened to many American monks especially. We've seen it. People are just like wavering and not sure w- what they are or what they're attempting to be. It's a very tricky thing because I've lived with monks and nuns a lot. And I've gotten to know what goes on inside. I don't have a romantic picture of it. I have a, the deepest respect for the ideal of, let's say, the Arya Sangha, the order of monks and nuns. It's the, the nuns order is starting to get revived now. It's been a bit dormant for a while. For the ideal and when it's carried out, and there are, there are plenty of people who are really doing it, but an enormous number of monks and nuns are not... What they're doing, for example, what is more spiritual? Let's say if you have somebody who's wearing monk's clothes, shaven head, uh, just eating one meal a day, you know, etc., no sex, and not carrying money. But if all day long they're walking around, I'm a monk, 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 you're a layperson, you're a layperson, you're a layperson, you're a layperson. Is that any more free? I would say it's less free if, if you were a layperson and you were just simple, not preoccupied with being a lay person or a monk, a clear mind, uh, using the things of the world which are, are, have their own beauty. There's nothing wrong with food necessarily or money or making love or having a home. None of those things are in and of themselves suffering. They're just what they are. It's just that we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to live with them. We get attached. We get over or under or something. So, by the way... Um, the state of being an arhat has nothing to do with being a monk or not a monk. That's beyond... The, the, being a monk or a nun in that life, that's a conventional form. That's a convention. 
That's something that's been devised as a skillful means to help people, and and some it helps them a lot. It's kept Buddhism alive for all these years. So the the art of if you got sad, you ought to look into that. What is that about? Because non-attachment can mean it can mean, let's say, um, doing whatever you do fully. That's what we've been encouraging. We've been we've been encouraging our, all of us, encouraging ourselves to do it. That is, it means when it's time to eat, to be able to eat. Be able to, but when the meal's over, it's over. Now, it's a different kind of training. What you're learning there is you're learning how to fully do something and how when it's over, it's over, to move on to what's next. I think that has its own rigors. It's very difficult. It has its own dignity to learn how to... to real, now, how are you going to learn that? I, it seems to me you've got you've to dive in. You know, you've gotta, otherwise, we're going to be constantly poised in this strange state of neither living the monk's path or or fully under the things of the world are intimidating, we kind of dabble in them, and we dabble in the so-called spiritual path, we're neither. Uh, I had one teacher, Swami uh, Chinmayananda, who was a Hindu, who uh, I heard him you know, tell a lot of his students, he said, you know, many of you, you'd be better off, just why don't you go and just become successful businessmen, for goodness sakes, and get it over with. You know, you're not really yogis, you're not really in the business world, you don't have relationships, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're just trying to like avoid everything, playing it safe, cutting corners all over the place. And he just felt, he said, I think you're better off. Just, just go into business and do that 100% is better than being a half-baked yogi. Use a stronger word than baked. <laughs> and so I think our we, we're having to find out what we need to do because so much, this again, very much my opinion, I take responsibility for it, but it is just that. Uh, I feel that I've had a number of excellent teachers who've been monks, and I also feel that some of the advice they've given me sometimes has not been exactly correct because they haven't known what it's like to be in the world. And it's not that they're bad, it's just that they've grown up in a totally, with totally different challenges and see lay people very differently. So... Um, it does, non-attachment is just another, another way of living. It could be another way of living fully, free, freely in the world. Does that make sense to you? I don't... It's very important to know what you want, you know. Uh, if you're not sure, of course, you're going to be fall prey to all the different vulnerabilities that are part of this. simple reminder of, of course, you know, everything can be changed and things that 
quality that I bring to whatever. That's me. That's that's my understanding of non attachment is that sometimes the sense of form is you're not attached to whatever form. Although you participated in it. Okay. Yes. Let me just close because I think uh, uh, I don't want us to talk too much. The retreat is still very much with us. Um, as I understand what you're saying, you're getting at a very, very subtle point in, 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 uh, in our practice, which is really, if you get attached to form, you'll suffer. If you get attached to emptiness, you'll suffer too. In other words, if you get attached to formlessness, the truth is form is here to stay. You know, we, we need form. Uh, and emptiness or formlessness, and it's a very delicate, and that's what, that's what non-attachment is. It's not getting stuck anywhere. Let me give you, uh, many monks know this. They know it really well. You know, I, I'm, uh, so even within the monk's life, they can come to a point. For example, there's a, uh, a Zen master, a Chinese Zen master, who was dying, and they have a tradition that before the teacher dies, he'll give one last Dharma talk, and the whole community comes together. And so uh, that was happening. And uh, as you know, you know, monks are not supposed to be attached to food. So um, they'll even reflect on the repulsiveness of food sometimes, just to use food just to stay healthy, but no more. Okay. So the whole community, he had, they asked him, um, you know, what he wanted for his for, at the end, and he, he so he, he said, "Could you go into town and get me a bag of my favorite cookies?" <laughs> so, so so someone did, and he's sitting, and everyone's waiting for his last <laughs> Dharma talk. There are all these people, and he just takes the cookie, bites into it, and says. Mmm, delicious, and falls over dead. <laughs> okay, now you can see what he's tr- he's trying saying. You know, you know, isn't, you see what I'm what he's saying. So it has a lot of there are a lot of subtle twists in this. You can get attached to anything, you know, to to stillness, you know, to then the, then the opposite of stillness, and so it's a. Uh, our practices constantly uh, seeing through these things that cause cause problems. fortunate enough to have good companionship or a good meal or a very nice place to stay to be able to fully appreciate that, fully experience it, enjoy it. And when it's gone, for it to be gone, it's okay. And when we're, we have to do without for us to be able to do that, for us to be strong enough to do without, no big deal. It seems to me that's some of the things we have to learn. Some of our path is that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.